Hello, everybody. Thank you for stopping by. Welcome to the Stand Up Taller podcast with Neil Berliner and Al Martin. Take it away, guys. Hey, everybody. Al Martin here with our, I guess, our Christmas edition of uh, the Stand Up Taller podcast. And uh, uh, it's going to be a great one. We have a great guest, uh, one with such incredible background in comedy. It's it's going to be uh, unbelievable. Neil, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we have a legendary guy here, a great friend, a friend to the entire industry. Everybody loves this guy. You can't, you know, you talk about people in the business and everybody has somebody they can't stand, right? Well, nobody can't stand Eddie Brill. Everybody loves Eddie Brill. So it's a real pleasure to have him on. Uh, he's helped so many comedians. I mean, he he does workshop. He he's just a giver. Eddie Eddie Brill's a giver. He's given to me. I mean, he's given me so many tips and gigs from people. And just I mean, you can't say enough about this guy. So uh maybe we should just get right into it and you know not do our customary bullshit at the beginning. Unless you want you want to talk about the cold for a second? 150 million people with sub-zero temperatures in this country today, tomorrow. Jesus. It's, it's horrible. I mean, it's just so like I was saying to you uh, earlier, um, I just don't like to travel this time of year. It's just, it's, uh, it's just too much. You're dealing with too much. I mean, I'm sure people have to get somewhere, but if you can avoid it, why deal with? You know, one time last year, I got canceled four times. I get and not ahead of time. Four times, got to the airport, and they just cancel a flight. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, thousands and thousands of flights. 170 airports are affected by this, apparently. I got canceled canceled last week three times, but that was by my wife for sex. But that's another story. Anyway. Leave the funny to Eddie. I won't won't do the comedy. It's clear that I won't be doing the comedy here. It's clear that I'm not going to be the one involved in comedy. Okay. All right. Let's bring them on. What the hell? So, Eddie. Hey. Got to start off by saying um, it's kind of a special series of gigs you're doing recently with a person very special to you. Why don't you tell our audience about who you've been playing with recently? Yeah, well, um, my son, um, you know, and when he was 21, he's 35 now. He had moved to L.A. because he was always his dream to, you know, he's an actor musician. And, uh, you know, he went out to look to get like, you know, a job at a place just to make some money at the beginning. And he went over to the comedy store and just checked on it. And, uh, you know, Mitzi, just like she tr- treated me really well, uh, treated my son really well and got him a job there. And little by little, he started doing stand up and then he became really good at it. Like, you know, he's been really dedicated and traveling all over as a comic. And uh, so the mixture of his acting work, because he's doing a lot of film and television, uh, but he's become a, a terrific stand up. I'm very proud of him, you know. Of course, I'm, you're going to be prejudiced about your own kid or whatever, but I'm really, I really think he's great. The thing that I, the, the parts that make me know he's great is friends of mine, like Don Myrera and people like that I really respect and, and admire. They all know and say that my son's really a great comic. So he was living in LA with his uh, wife and they had a baby, which is exciting. Uh, came grandpa a little over a year ago. Eddie. Yeah, which was funny because I was named after my grandpa, Eddie. Yeah. And uh, it's really nice. And so they wanted to move back east. They just like it better over here. And uh, they moved up to Poughkeepsie to start off, buy a house. 
And um, he's done a few shows up there because he kind of grew up there. That's a whole other story. And um, and so, I, you know, he asked me if I would work with him. And I said, oh, of course. And so little by little, you know, if he gets a gig, he'll call me and say, you want to work with me? And I get a gig. I see if he wants to work with me and work together a lot. And uh, we in fact, during the New York Comedy Festival, we got to do a show at a nice intimate venue in the East Village called Pangea. And uh, we just really uh, complement each other very well. And uh, it's a nice combination of two, you know, different generations of comedy. And uh, he gets better and better and he makes him work harder and harder, which is fantastic. So now do you see that do you see the genetics coming through? Do you see some of yourself, the style, the gestures, the material, any anything? I'm sure you do see something in of you in him. And what is that if you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see the gestures and the, you know, the facial expressions and uh, but he's his own person. And uh, and that's the part that I will never get in the way of. I want him to, you know, uh, be his own man. And he's taken that to heart and and he really is doing everything he could do to be himself, which mm-hmm. is really the key in comedy is to be the, your most authentic self. Exactly. And uh, he understands that when I was. Um, early when I was working at Letterman back in the day and booking comics, I would bring him with me on these auditions. And, you know, we'd usually audition 10 comedians uh, a night in a show, whatever city we were in. And, uh, you know, we discuss together what we, you know, found out about what we felt about each comedian that audition, where they write for this certain show. And, you know, we, we gave each other, we were very honest with each other, gave each other a nice, education and uh it's a phenomenal relationship i you know i love him like crazy and uh i couldn't be more proud and it's also as you say it's great to get the outside uh validation from other professionals and the audiences in other words he doesn't need eddie brill to be his own man and right and be his own successful comedian and he has a different last name than i do which i think yes. is helpful to him Absolutely. because they don't go oh here's you know Eddie Brill's son or something like that. Not that anyone would say it or that we should care, but I really like that he has his own deal. The interesting part of the story, which is actually an incredibly long story that I won't give all the details to, but it's a phenomenal part of the story, is I didn't know I had a son until he was just about 12. And uh, he came into my life and, uh, you know, it, uh, it took a little bit of time for us to be comfortable with each other, but not long. And uh, he just uh-huh. we we just hit it off and hit the ground running. So, you know, it was a little bit of a shock. Yeah, well, I'm <laughs> glad it happened at age 12 because he probably got to pay for the bar mitzvah. <laughs> there you go. See, well, yeah, it was that age. I never thought of yeah. that. That's incredible, Eddie. That you um, that your son actually punched through uh, a lot of places like uh, the comedy store and stuff like that without your last name. Where if he had your last name, you know, it it probably would have made his life easier. So he really, that's really something to be proud of, that mm-hmm. he, he he accomplished all this not using, you know, uh, say the brand, uh, your brand that, you know, you're pretty well known in the comedy. And I think you have a lot of connections going back to the comedy store um, in your history. Yeah. yeah, back in 86, I went to... Uh, do star search and i auditioned at the i had auditions at the improv and the comedy store and i did my improv audition and mark leno said look we really think you're funny but you have to move here in order for us to use you and i go i'll you know keep that in mind for the future but i was running a comedy club in new york the paper moon 
um, which was wildly successful. And I wasn't giving that up until I gave it up to Barry Katz and it became the Boston Comedy Club. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I started that that whole uh, deal back then. Um, so the the point is, is that it's 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 kind of interesting to me how I was able to create a certain thing on my own. Went out to L.A., like I said, 1986. Mitzi Shore saw me and said, I love you. And anytime you're out here, you can work the comedy club, the comedy store. So I chose the comedy store because it gave me the chance to go back and forth, run the club in New York and come out to L.A. Uh, Sam Kinison was one of the many people who uh, lent a hand to me back then. John Mendoza, Robert Schimmel, Taylor Negron, on and on, Diane Ford. You know, people who just, uh, Monica Piper, people who just gave, uh, were very generous to me and made my transfer very easy um, in L.A. And it, so it gave me a chance to go back and forth, back and forth. Kinison eventually said, hey, you should move out here because this is where the work is and we'll, I'll make sure you're working every night. So uh, what were you going to say, Al? No, I was going to say, you mentioned Robert Schimmel. I know you have quite a close relationship with him and and um y- you know you, you guys had worked quite a bit together yeah he's the you know i'm the oldest of five and i never had an older brother my father wasn't around that much as a, when i was a child he eventually became really him and i were very close and my stepfather only lived who was great only was around for five years because of cancer so i never really had a a man that I could look up to as an older brother, a father figure. And uh, Schimmel became that guy to me. He took me in. He made sure I had a place to live. He took me all over the country with him and put it in his contract that if he was working somewhere, that I was the person who was going to open for him um, if I wanted to. And they couldn't book somebody else unless he approved it. So, you know, Schimmel went above and beyond to really help me out a lot, a lot, a lot. So, you know, um, you know, it's it's like that all over. I mean, I've I've been very blessed to have these incredible people look out for me, and I vowed to do the same for others. You know, the Boston comedy scene that I was in when I was in college, you know, guys like Don Gavin or Tony V or, you know, these kind of uh, comics, they were just brilliant, and they took me in and made me one of theirs. It, so I've been very you know, very blessed and lucky to have all that. But in in return, I vowed that I would be that that way from uh, other people. And I, it just, it happens a lot. The, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the comedy business is a lot of jerks. But every business is a lot of jerks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in comedy, we really look out for each other. You know, guys like Taylor Negron, who was a genius, taught me a lot about improv, uh, improving on stage and and go on and on and tell, you know, give you stories about these guys. But Kinnison was really good to me at the store. And Mitzi ended up putting me in the Arrow Flynn house right behind the comedy store. So I lived at the comedy store. It was my living room. So every night I was either on stage there or watching the greatest comics in the world, like a classroom. You know, there was Roseanne and Richard Pryor and, you know, just on and on and on. So saying a lot of famous names, but there were also, you know, me, Jimmy Schubert, Stephen Pearl. We were all sort of, you know, Kinison's young, younger brothers. And Kinison mm-hmm. took care of us and gave us stage time and uh, and was also very honest with us, which is what you really need as a comic. You need someone to, you know, not be mean, but to be really honest. 
not to not to interrupt real quick, Eddie, but as uh, as a uh, you know a young comic myself coming up in Boston, I you know some of the names that you were mentioning like Tony V and uh, you know all all those guys, Jimmy Tingle, uh, some yeah. of the bunch of like the Boston guys. It's really interesting because as a young comic, those guys are still around. You know, I still see them, and I'm still you know very involved. So it's very cool to see that your career. You know, and of course you mentioned the Boston Comedy Club, which uh, you know I know as an enormous fan of uh, guys like Patrice and uh, Bill Burr and things of that nature. They came up in that room. It's very very cool. So I I just want to personally say that uh, it's very very cool to hear your history and to hear the the great impact that you've made on this business. Um, yeah. Barry Crimmins was really running the Boston comedy scene. And really, and had this really great club in Inman Square in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And he took care of us. And he the Ding Ho. The Ding Ho. And we mm-hmm. worked there and it was great. Jimmy Tingle was the bartender, mm-hmm. you know, and Don Gavin, even though he was a veteran, he, you know, I worked with him at Stitches in Boston. And after the show, he spent time with me because he liked my comedy and wanted to give me some hints if I wanted it. And I took it all. And one of the best comics in the country um is tony v not only is he a great amazing person but he's a he's a real giver and he really looked out for everybody including myself and now all these years later you know there's this great hierarchy of the great don gavin and lenny clark and steve sweeney and all them but tony v is the is the one who i think is has risen above everybody else because he constantly writes new material he constantly helps other people. And I look at him as a, a major influence in my life and my career. Mm-hmm. You know, so, Eddie, you went, to, I'm sorry, you went yeah, to Emerson. And was, the pur- was the purpose of going to Emerson to be a comedian or did you decide at Emerson that, you know, stand up comedy was for you? I went to school for, you know, radio and television. I was going to either be a DJ or a sports announcer or a news person, something like that. Uh, you know, I had written for the local newspaper and, in in high school and i thought that was kind of cool and my stepfather had died very young so i decided i was going to really live a life where i could do the things i wanted to do i was a math person and i uh, you know would have gone to a, a major math program otherwise oddly enough comedy is so involved mathematics are involved in comedy and music yeah. and so all of the odd specialized math that i learned through my life has helped me to be a better performer comedian, nonverbal uh, performer as well. Um, so I went to Emerson in the, like the very beginning of, of Emerson. I had met all these people who were, we became friends and we formed a comedy group. And then it was all of a sudden wildly successful. And, uh, you know, Dennis Leary and Stephen Wright and Mario Cantone and Laura Keitlinger. And I can do the list of names. Lauren Dombrowski was like, uh, you know, the, eventually the head writer of uh, Friday's, uh, you know, all these people I went to school with and we didn't know any better. We just did what we loved and we worked hard at it. And it was, again, Emerson, you know, before us, there was Jay Leno went there and Norman Lear and Henry Winkler and Andrea Martin. But there was no comedy program. So my second year at Emerson, um, I met Norman Lear and I talked to him about what we were doing and how we could use some help because we had alumni who were just great and we wanted to learn from them including at the time Saturday Night Live, I started school in 76, Saturday Night Live started in 75. The head writer uh, at at SNL was Marilyn Suzanne Miller, who was a Emerson graduate. So we just wanted to meet all of, you know, Jerry Paris, uh, you know, the Dick Van Dyke show and all these people. So we got to, Norman Lear came through and put money up 
after our discussion and the school mats and we formed the first comedy writing department in the country. And then all it's been going on all these years. And now you can uh, study comedy in Emerson. And then you've gotten Bill Burr and uh, Jen Kirkman and uh, mm-hmm. Jennifer Coolidge. And I think the, the list of, of names is impressive of people who have gone to Emerson because of what we started back in the day. So when did you realize, Eddie, you've had a great career and it's been totally comedy. When did you realize that you would never have to work another day job (laughs) in your life? Um, It's interesting because there are sort of day jobby kind of things I've done, like working at Letterman during the day. But that's comedy related, though, right? Yeah, it's always. Yeah. I never thought of it like that. I just thought of it. I just love working. I'm a workaholic. I always have been. My whole family's like that. To be honest, we were very poor in Florida, especially when my stepfather got sick. And, uh, you know, we needed help. And we had neighbors that helped us. We had a next door neighbor who was, you know, our Thanksgiving dinners were provided by their church. And, you know, we got food stamps, which was a bridge to, you know, until my younger brothers can start working. My mother and I worked a lot. So, you know, we appreciated everything we had and, and we worked really hard and it's never I've never stopped, you know, everybody in my family, you know, my brothers who are still around, um, everyone worked hard. So it never was a chore to work hard. And I loved what I did. So, uh, it, again, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't think of it. I think of it all like d- during the day I do some writing, you know, I woke up at three in the morning this, and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I wrote a story and put it on Facebook today about an amazing story that had to do with Franco Harris. Uh, yeah, I was going to get to the Hungarian uh, photographer, right? Right. And yeah, we'll know. get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> but I'm just saying, <laughs> I can't stop. You know what I mean? I was up until yeah, yeah. I couldn't go back to bed. So I spent uh, two and a half hours writing a story. You know, so it's a long way to go around to answer your question. But, uh-huh. you know, I've... I did have a day job as an at an advertising agency. I did an internship at a news department, but those were jobs where you're basically lying. And you know, when you're a comedian, you're telling the truth, and that's how you become a really good comedian. So I preferred the truth over the lies, and went and went with that. Well, speaking of your stories and your writing, I've been hearing for years that you're going to write a book. So I have the been. book is written basically already. You don't have yeah. to slap it together. So what's right, the but you have book? to? I want a publisher. I'm stubborn about that, and uh-huh. I'm waiting to find out. And I actually a friend of mine I spoke to yesterday is going to introduce me to a publisher right after Christmas. Oh, great! great who great. might be interested? Yeah, no, I would love it. You know, but I just love the the. I just love writing. I just love the process. You know, and uh, so you know, I it's because I do it often. I get you get better at it. Sure. So I've taken a lot of my older stories and rewritten them, and it has a better rhythm. Like as you know, in, uh, like in comedy, you go on stage, and eventually you, like at the beginning, most comics act like a comedian. A comedian. I love. I acted like George Carlin because he was my hero, and my rhythms were very George Carlin, and my some of my jokes were very similar. But then eventually, you find out who you are, and you bring that to the stage, and you have your own rhythms. And uh, rhythms are very important, especially nonverbal stuff that a lot of people don't realize the layers that it takes to be a great comedian. Right. Well, one thing about you that differentiates you, I think, is that you don't care how big the crowd is. Some comedians, they see a small crowd, they they bitch and moan about it. But you have a great story about performing for two people, a couple. (laughs) You want to tell that story? Well, yeah. You know, the comic strip used to have a rule that if there was anybody left in the room, 
And, you know, you would have to go on. And one night they said, there's only two people in there, but you're next. And I was like, okay. And, you know, those two people came. They took the, you know, David Brenner actually taught me this. He says, whoever's there, whoever the crowd is, they came out to see you. They shouldn't be punished because it's a small crowd. You have to give them your best show. He yelled at me once because he, I, you know, got very close to him. He helped me. Him and Joan Rivers actually helped me with my very first Letterman spot. So, again, I've just been blessed to be helped by some of the greatest people in the industry. And Brenner and I became very close. And he said to me one night, he was doing the 10 o'clock show at Caroline's. And I had the 1230. Of course, he was sold out. And I had 17 people in the audience. And I kind of bitched to him. I said, oh, God, I wish it was a big crowd. And he yelled at me. He said, look, those people paid to see you. They deserve a show. And I ended up having one of the best shows of my life because of the the beatdown I got from Brenner. (laughs) And I I thanked him so much for it. And I've never forgotten that. So if there's two people in the audience, we had a great time, those two people from Scottsdale, Arizona. I'll never forget them. I can still picture them. You know, um, Eddie, a lot of times when I talk to young comedians and they ask me uh, advice about stand-up comedy, I will tell them that a lot of it, of course, is your writing and a lot of it is your stage presence and stuff, but a very important part of comedy and comics are a lot of times a little weak in this area because we tend to get into comedy because we're a little socially awkward and this is our way of expressing ourselves, but usually socially they're a mess and, and (laughs) you I'm listening to the, you must be doing something right in the ability to network and talk to people and be willing to listen to advice to have had such an incredible array of mentors in your life, from Sam Kennison to Schimmel to Dennis Leary to to all all the other people, Joan Rivers. I mean, it's not a lot of times where people can say, Joan Rivers helped me with my my very letter. first my very first letterman uh, appearance was about a week and a half away and i was at the airport in milwaukee i just finished working the comedy cafe in milwaukee which was one of the best clubs ever i did two new year's eves there it was so good and uh and i loved the people who worked there and i dated someone from milwaukee so they were very kind to let me work at a couple of times a year and um after the show was over i you know went to the airport and i was flying home from my gig. And there was Joan Rivers who was flying home from her theater gig on the same flight. And um, so I went up to her. I'd met her once before for a very short moment. And I told her, you know, it was nice to see you and, uh, you know, the whole thing. And I was just honest with her. And I said, look, I just did this club and I'm doing Letterman for the first time as a guest. And so we're on the plane. It was People's Express or People Airway. I forget the name of it. And it was only two seats. They're all first class seats. And uh, they were famous for having delicious cookies. But uh, it was a very, I forget the name of the airline, Midwest Express. That was it. And so everyone has two seats. So I'm uh, by myself sitting next to this woman in the front. And all of a sudden during the flight, Joan Rivers comes over to the lady and says, will you switch seats with me? And so the lady said, sure. And then Joan Rivers said, all right, let me hear the set. And she went over this. I went over the set with her on the plane. And she gave me great advice, especially about nonverbal communication skills and what she learned from Jack Benny and and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was very, very beautiful. And I'll never forget her for it. 
as a matter of fact, years later, I was hosting this event on stage at the Saturday Night Live, you know, uh, 6H or whatever that's called, that studio. And um, I was sort of like a, a pre-show thing where I was talking to the crowd. And every time someone came in late, I would roast them a little bit. And it was all celebrities. The whole audience were celebrities. There was nobody but. And so it was kind of fun to be able to do that. And the crowd loved it. And I think people got up, go to the bathroom to come back because they wanted to get roasted. You know, it just all of a sudden there were so many people who, you know, and I, I wasn't a roast comic. I was just having fun with them. And they were having a blast. And then Joan Rivers came in a little bit later and the crowd was like, all right, let's see what Eddie can do to Joan Rivers. And I told the crowd the story about how she helped me uh, with my first Letterman set. And, uh, and I wouldn't roast her ever, you know, I wouldn't. And the crowd stood and gave her a standing ovation and, uh, and cheered her. And she like a little tear came to her eye and it was great. I mean, you know, it's just like a dream come true. You know, she's one of the greatest comics of all time. And I was lucky enough to, have her attention. She was very good to comedians always. She was good. Dick Cabot, uh, who I got to know through the Johnny Carson Festival, um, is has become like my uncle. He's we're like really like family. And he told me incredible stories about Joan Rivers. Every time he went to a new network or had a new show, Joan would always make sure she was there to help him uh with his, you know, early success. And so again, that's the Joan Rivers story. But as far as, you know, looking, you know, getting people to help you, it's because everyone's a comedian, you know. 